Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I would like to welcome our listeners to part two of an interview with Rondell King. Now, Mr. King is a certified strength and conditioning specialist and corrective exercise specialist. His programming aims to bring out the best in a person's health and performance. He has a strong interest in postural asymmetries and the nervous system as it relates to biomechanics, human performance, and general health. Mr. King leads group fitness classes at NYU Langone Orthopedic Center and is a clinician with the running lab and the golf lab. So, welcome back to you, Mr. King. On this occasion, let's talk about some fitness myths and weight loss. In a recently conducted interview with Heather, we discussed gaining muscle mass versus strength and stability. What's the relationship between that topic and today's discussion of weight loss? Well, I I definitely think there's a direct correlation between the two because Developing a solid foundation of stability and muscle strength will definitely aid in your efforts to lose weight because your overall performance will be better and it it can definitely lead to better outcomes with regard to weight loss. And please describe the kinds of patients that you're involved with treating who would benefit from losing weight. I think everyone that we see here at this Sports Performance Center, if they are at a point where they are overweight, um, I believe everyone can benefit from from weight loss. So it it all depends and what it comes down to is is their overall goal. But if a person does have excess weight, I think it will be beneficial for them to definitely take that route and definitely lose some weight because there are benefits to losing weight and shedding some of those extra pounds with regard to inflammation and the the effects it can have on your heart and the relationship between being overweight and diabetes and the overall cancer risk as well. It's possible that some individuals may have what's called eating disorders. If that's the case, please describe the kinds of disorders that they experience. In my clinical practice, I honestly, I have not come across a lot of eating disorders. And I believe because it's a, it's a little bit out of the scope of exercise physiology. So if we do get someone with an eating disorder, yes, we do have to treat that individual with particular care because we can't necessarily say that you, you have to be very careful with, with regard to how you approach individuals with eating disorders. So we definitely take a systematic approach and we may invite different practitioners in so we can develop the best outcome for that individual. Yeah, because it would seem to be essential when you first deal with a patient to know a little bit about their history and what some of the reasons might be why they've had this excess weight development and everything. 
And then that might Fair be enough. an, yeah, that possibly could be an underlying factor that if that behavior continues, it's just going to offset whatever you're trying to do in the weight loss type of activity. Right. So when you're dealing with these different kinds of patients, and I'm sure they cover a wide spectrum, are there any demographic factors such as age, gender, and even race and ethnicity that would influence the attainment of the successful outcomes you hope to achieve? And if so, in what ways might that occur? There, it's, it's very wide ranging with regards to the demographics when it comes to a particular eating disorder. And there are different things that contribute to eating disorders as well. And with regard to weight loss, there are drugs that can aid in weight gain, like say, for instance, depression drugs, rheumatic drugs, antiviral drugs, things of that nature can contribute to weight gain. So these individuals who are on these drugs because of their mental state, they have a hard time because the drug is actually counterproductive to what you're doing in, in, in the weight room or in the gym. So you definitely have to take a systematic approach with regard to weight loss when you have these underlying factors such as um, the medication that may be contributing to the weight gain. Dietary supplements seem to be pretty well advertised through the media and fairly easily accessible for individuals who would like to purchase them. So as you look at the dietary supplements role in weight loss reduction, do you have any opinion on what adverse events, if any, might be associated with using them by these individuals? Supplements, it, it does have its place with regard to the nutrition, but I think we really need to take a look at what's missing in our diets, and then we can therefore supplement in areas that we may be missing. So with regard to the, the, the overall topic of nutritional supplements, I, I think it does have its place, but only where there's, a, where there's something missing in someone's diet. So say, for instance, if you're not having your diet is void in omega-3 fatty acids, then that it might be a good idea to take to supplement that with some, you know, pill form. Apart from any specific dietary interventions, what kinds of lifestyle changes might prove to be effective in achieving weight loss? I think most importantly, you just have to move. Any form of movement, there's a metabolic cost to that. And, and what do I mean by that? By just moving in general. So say, for instance, if you're a very sedentary individual, you're on your couch constantly, then you're not moving. So you're not expending a lot of energy. You're just expending the energy to sustain yourself at that point in time. But say, for instance, if you're constantly moving around, you're doing housework, your car is parked a couple blocks further, and it's not in front of your house, or you take the stairs instead of the elevator, those are lifestyle changes that can positively impact your weight loss efforts. So I think in general, just keep moving. That sounds like very good advice. As technological developments continue to unfold, what role, if any, do you see in the wearing of these so-called wearable devices and the role that they might play in contributing to weight loss? You know, piggybacking on my last point, as far as telling you to constantly keep moving, a lot of the, the, the wearables today, they, it actually detects if you've been sitting for too long. So I think it's, it's been very helpful with regard to getting people up and, you know, just giving them that, that reminder that, hey, I've been sitting for too long. I need to get up. I need to, to stretch my legs. Maybe I need to elevate my heart rate a little bit. 
So I think the, the, the wearables and the technological wave that's been occurring over the past 10 years, I would say, it's been huge with regard to getting people up and you know, just sending, giving them that reminder. Many health authorities today are making the claim that the sedentary life is equivalent to smoking as far as its adverse impact on health status. So now getting back to the subject of nutrition itself, is it possible that an individual could out-train poor nutritional behavior? No, I, I do not think so. Because every every meal you have, it's going to have an effect on your body. And with regards to out-training out poor nutrition, you may, if you're training and you're eating a, a particularly poor diet or a diet void in, in nutritional value and you're not gaining weight, what's happening? You say, okay, I can live with that. However, when you look at the cellular level, your body is not getting the nutrition that it requires. Despite not losing weight, not eating the proper foods that are, you know, void in, you know, nutrition and electrolytes and proper proteins, just the quality of food is very important with that regard. And not all calories are equal. So if you eat a diet that's poor and you're not gaining weight, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're in a good standing because your body can be calling for more nutrition or foods that are more equipped to sustain your body with the nutrition that it needs. It's common in venues such as health clubs to see individuals doing crunches. Now, does the performance of crunches, will that lead to what's called flat abs? Yes, I've, I've heard this many times before, and unfortunately, we get abs in the kitchen. <laughs> um, so nutrition or having a, you know, a well-rounded exercise program and proper nutrition that goes with a lot of nutrients, um, I think that will be key to, to developing abs. So crunches, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily give you abs. It will help because it, it is a form of exercise, but doing a certain amount of crunches will not give you abs. You definitely need to take a systematic approach with diet and exercise to, to get abs. The onset of perspiration often accompanies vigorous physical activity. So when an individual is beginning to sweat more, is there a correlation also with the burning of more calories that will take place? No, there, there is no correlation with regard to the amount of sweat that is produced and weight loss, unfortunately, nor have I come across any studies that have confirmed that. You can go anywhere in the U.S. now and you'll see joggers out there and they might be running on hard surfaces like roads and sidewalks or whatever. So as far as the running itself, can that be bad for an individual's knees? Running? No, not at all. Running actually has a protective mechanism with regard to, you know, with regard to loading our joints and, and overall strength. Because when we do run, it places a lot of stress on our body. And if we design a program where we can run a certain amount of miles per week and we're, we're, we're resting, it's actually beneficial to our strength and the health of our joints. Because what we will do, because we put so much force through our joints when we do run, it actually reinforces our bones and it makes them stronger. So just with regard to running mechanics, if you have proper running mechanics, then you do get that benefit. However, on the other end, if you have poor mechanics, then that can be potentially detrimental to your joints. So 
it is important to make sure you have proper running mechanics before you embark on running on hard surfaces. How about doing squats? What effect does that have on knee? Same as running, because if you have poor squatting form, then it can be stressful on your joints as well. So I definitely think it's important to address the underlying factors of why you may have a poor squatting form. But if you have an appropriate range of motion in your hips and in the ankles and you have the appropriate core strength and stability, then squatting should not be an issue for you. But the individuals who do have pain when they are squatting, there must be an underlying cause with regard to why they're having that pain. But squatting itself does not cause pain because it's something that we do throughout our lives. A fairly common belief is that more is always better than less. How about in the situation of time spent in the gymnasium? Is more better than spending less? I don't think so. I think as humans, we, we're, you know, we're not made of steel and we, we need to have a point in our programming where we need to rest and digest because that is essentially part of the program. In one of our previous talks, we spoke about uh, developing muscle and strength. There does come a point where there is an actually a decrease in strength if you are in the gym too much and if you're essentially overtraining. And that can be very stressful on your body with regards to not just the mechanical loading, but also you can also have a hormonal response where you're constantly getting a a stress response to exercising too much. And that can lead to you, you know, decreasing muscle mass, bone mass, and things of that nature. So I definitely think you need to periodize your programming when you are going to the gymnasium and having the proper stimulus in the form of exercise, but also resting and recovering with regards to sleep and nutrition and things of that nature. Another common statement is no pain, no gain. What do you think of that notion? (laughs) Well, there is a point where you need to elicit some pain for for you to get the desired result or the desired outcome. So with regard to high performance athletes, they need to push themselves to the max in order to elicit a an adaptation. And starting off, I think it, it it all depends on on the individual that you're working with. Because while you're working with, say for instance, you're working with an athlete, there are days where you need to push them to the max, where they they may feel some discomfort, eh? or it may put them in a place where they feel very uncomfortable. Now, in my clinical practice, I won't necessarily call that pain. I would call it discomfort, right? So it's essentially training their conditioning for them to be used to the environment that they will be competing in. And on the other side of the spectrum, if you're getting someone who's just coming in, they've never exercised in their life before, you need to expose them to a stimulus that will be discomforting. It's not necessarily pain. And for that individual who's just starting off, you don't want to put them through a tough workout where they, you know, their muscles are hurting for three days. So once you take a systematic approach to exercise prescription, it should be discomforting, but it shouldn't be painful. Engaging in yoga has become quite popular. Can yoga help with back pain? 
There are cases where yoga can help with back pain. I don't think if you do have back pain, I would suggest that you go to a specialist that, you know, that can find the underlying cause of why you're experiencing back pain. Because in yoga, it's it's essentially a class. You're going in there and you don't necessarily have one-on-one attention if you are taking a group class. So if you are experiencing back pain, I, I definitely recommend that you go to a physical therapist or a orthopedic doctor to really find the underlying cause of why you're experiencing back pain. Apart from any injuries that might occur from lifting heavy weights, what do you think about the proposition that lifting heavy weights could make women bulky or bulkier than they would prefer to be? Well, that's one of the myths that it's been debunked numerous times because I've seen championship weightlifters and they don't necessarily, um, they don't look bulky. And the individuals that you do see that are, you know, they lift weights and they're, and they're bulky, they may be on some dietary supplement or some ergogenic aid that contributes to extreme muscle gain. So as far as the general population, if you lift heavy weights, it doesn't necessarily lead to big bulky muscles. You will see an increase in the cross-sectional area of muscle. However, you won't see mass gains, like say, for instance, like you would see if a man is, is lifting weights. Especially in health clubs, there are many different kinds of machines available for patrons. Are these machines better than using free weights? I think that both have its place in the gymnasium. So on one side of the one side of the spectrum, if you're using machines, what it does, it allows you to move more weight because what you don't have to do when you're using machine is provide the stability while you're moving the weight. So therefore you can stress your major muscle groups and you can push a little a little more weight with that regard. And on the other side, if you're constantly using free weights, then there's a benefit to that as well, because you will be able to lift a lot of weight. It won't be as much as using the machine. However, you do get the neuromuscular effect where you actually have to provide the stability to, say, for instance, if you're doing a a back squat, your body or your neuromuscular system needs to provide the necessary feedback to control that movement. So I definitely think both has its place in the gymnasium. It all depends on the population that you're working with as well that would benefit more from doing, say, for instance, functional activities, free weight versus the the machine weight. Rondell King, I'm going to conclude part two of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about your activities at NYU regarding fitness myths and weight loss. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all your endeavors. So again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.